Welcome to the South Fellowship Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. And wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Good morning, friends. How are you doing today? Good to see you all. My name's Alex. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting, uh, we're really glad that you are visiting. Uh, we, my family, kicked off our holiday weekend by heading up to Breckenridge on, on Friday. Uh, and as those of you know, it snowed a little. Uh, and when it snows a little, apparently everyone in Colorado who moved here from Texas forgets how to drive completely. And so I-70 coming back was a bit of a nightmare. And then we had one of those moments where, for those of you that are in a relationship, you, you know, sometimes there's like almost like a shift uh, where you take opposite roles. So we had this moment coming down I-70 where, where my wife suddenly starts finding all these routes that we could take off I-70 over mountains to get to other route, roads. And, and you need to know that generally in our relationship, I'm the foolish one that wants to take risks and she's the one that, that holds me in restraint. And so there's this suddenly this moment where we're driving along and I look to my right and I'm like, who have you become all of a sudden? Like, I can barely stay on this road, and now you want us to go adventuring over mountains and stuff. I, I kind of like this. This is kind of fun. Um, we didn't. We stayed on I-70, and that may be why we are still alive today. It may have been a good decision. Um, but it's just funny how relationships work, right? And today we're going to tap into a different kind of relationship. And yet, let me say this before we get too far in. This subject for some people is emotional. It may even be called a trigger. It may be something that, that, that raises up some emotions that you may not even know were there. And so to kick us off, what I want to do is pray, and then I'm going to throw some word association words at you. So let's pray. And often what I pray for this community as we talk through passages of the Bible is I pray this, God, would you take those of us that are comfortable and bring affliction? Would you stir us up? And would you take those of us that are afflicted and would you bring comfort? And particularly today, my prayer is for that second. For those of you that are afflicted, would you, would you experience comfort? Comfort of the God who loves you and is a good father. So Father, as we speak about your word, as we look at this prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, wherever we are, thank you that there are next steps for us. Would you take those of us that are comfortable and afflict us, move us on. Would you take those of us that are afflicted and would you bring comfort? And would you do this because of Jesus, whom you love and who loves us? Amen. Okay, so word association. You don't need to yell it out loud, but I'm going to throw up some words. You might want to note them down. You might want to think about them uh, in the future. If I say to you, boat, you think something. Look at you, some of you will call them out anyway. I love it. Just keep it coming. Yell as loud as you like. I say mountain. Some of you say, I don't know, skiing, snow, something like that. Wonder, glory. So I say table. Some of you say food, kitchen, all these different types of things. I say garden. Someone says maybe flowers, something like that. I don't know. And then this one. I say father. And a whole chunk of you respond mother. Uh, and then maybe some of you have something else that you see. Because depending on your relationship with a human father, there's a whole bunch of things that can get stirred up with that word. As I said at the beginning, for some of us, that word is a trigger. It's a thing that begins to stir up all sorts of emotions. So I want you to hold that intention for just a while. We're going to make sure we're all on the same 
page when it comes to prayer. We're talking about the idea of praying, communicating with God. And when I say prayer, that too may have loads of different connotations for different people in this room. Some of you may hear a continual ongoing conversation with God, something that brings joy and stability and life to you. Some of you may hear religious ceremony. Important, but but kind of dry, kind of boring. Some of you may hear lottery ticket. The thing that people do when they've run out of every other option, when they've tried everything else, when they've visited every doctor, all of those different things, the, the fallback thing. And some of you may say, something that I'd love to be good at, but I just wrestle with, I just struggle with. Now, whichever one of those you camps you find yourself in, the good news is I really believe that we can nudge the journey along a little bit as we talk about how Jesus taught us to pray. A couple of thousand years ago, 12 men came to Jesus with this same request. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. These were people that longed to be better. They had seen something in Jesus that was compelling. Jesus didn't pray in some kind of dry way. He seemed to be doing that first thing. He seemed to have this continual relationship with God that was constantly moving, constantly fluid. It seemed to enter into every part of his life. But Jesus being Jesus doesn't give them words straight away. He gives them a couple of things not to do. Don't pray at God for human attention might be a summary of what he says. Now, now, does that mean that when you pray in a group of people, you can't find that a little distracting, that you can't spend time worrying about what they might think or, or that that's not normal? I don't think it means that at all, but, but it does mean don't try and impress someone with how good you are at praying because God, it seems, isn't particularly impressed by that. And don't pray at God to force divine intervention. Don't think you can make God do something by using the right combinations of words or saying them over and over again. Now, does this mean divine intervention isn't part of prayer? No, in actual fact, so often we pray because we believe and we want God to do something. But don't believe you can force it because it seems God will not be forced by the right combination of words. And then last week, Yvonne and I tag team preached, which was really good fun. We got to take different sides of the argument. We looked at should you pray alone? Jesus says, go into a room. Or should you pray together? The history of the church is lots of people gathering together and, and praying as a community. Which is it? And, and it seems like, of course, the answer is both. You might say this, prayer alone enriches prayer together. When Jesus says, go into a room and shut the door, it seems that if you don't have that space, you don't have that ability to hide away, to be with God, just you and him, that what can easily happen is this, when you gather together as a group, you fall prey, you fall into the trap of praying just for human attention. As Jesus said not to do, it seems like the answer is this, the attitude to come to prayer is pray with God, both alone and together. It is a with thing, it's a relationship. Some, some people have said that prayer might be described as a Christian's vital breath. Just for a second, hold a breath and feel how quickly that sort of feeling of combustion, that feeling in your chest starts to tighten and you desperately need to gasp for a breath. It happens in just a, a few moments and it seems like for a long time people in church have said prayer is like that for followers of Jesus. It's something that we desperately, desperately need even though we're not always aware of that. And now finally... We get to the words, which some of you have been waiting for a while. What, what does Jesus say that we should say 
when we pray. And he gives his followers, at least in the Greek language that we have it written down in, 57 words. 57 words to change everything about prayer. And here they are. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So the prayer in its structure, super simple. We're going to take away the first line for just a second, but it begins with three clauses. Three things that you might say about God or three things you might declare about God. The first one is this, hallowed be your name. Not, not could you make your name holy, but let us remember that your name already is holy. That the Jewish people saw the name of God as this holy thing that they would rarely say out loud. It was, it was important to remember that that is who God was and, and that provides this perfect tension in the first line of it's both intimate, as we'll see later, but it's also distant. God is up there. God is separate from us. Your kingdom come. Each and every single one of us today would say, we see stories, see things in the news that, that seems like that isn't how God if he's good, would want the world to operate. That was just as true 2,000 years ago. So your kingdom come is, let this place, let it reflect how you'd run things. Let your kingdom be here. And then your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. These are these three clauses that it opens with, three things that we reflect about God and what he might be in the universe. And then three petitions, three things that we might ask for us, give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Three things that we might think at times we have control over, but actually when we think about it, we have less control than we think. We might think, oh, I get to control my daily bread. I get to earn money. I have a salary. It's constantly coming until suddenly there's some kind of stoppage and food trucks aren't moving around the country in the way that they used to. And we wonder, will there be enough food in supermarkets? We had this conversation in our small group the other day and, and one of the guys who hunts and, and does all of those things says, don't worry guys, I'll be in your tribe. I'll make sure you survive when there's a crisis. I'll, I'll look after you. And, and I was deeply aware that, that I needed that, that I wouldn't be okay. And, and somewhere this prayer is there to give us our daily bread and, and to forgive us our debts because we constantly build up that debt with each and each, each other. And, and we do it with God too. It's like, Cancel it all, God. Would you, would you forgive me? I'm going to forgive others. I'm going to let go. And then lead us not into temptation. Would you protect us? Would you make sure that the evil one, whatever that means in this context, is, was safe? The, the three things that we think we have control over, but, but we don't always. Three clauses about God and three petitions for us in everyday life. So I said to you a couple of weeks ago, Jesus is going to change everything about prayer in just 57 words. And that is true, except this prayer so far, the thing that's most notable about it is how normal it is. The thing that's most unusual about it is how usual it is. It is a everyday common prayer in so many ways. Now, as we wrestle with this over multiple weeks, we'll start to see ways that Jesus adds nuances and that is some of his brilliance. But in terms of everyday language, this prayer 
was not uncommon for the first century. Here's a prayer from a little before Jesus' time that was really popular in synagogues. Exalted and hallowed be his great name in the world which he created according to his will. May he let his kingdom rule in your lifetime and in your days and in the lifetime of the whole house of Israel speedily and soon. Praised be his great name from eternity to eternity and to this say amen. Do you see some of the similarities? There's a prayer for God's kingdom to come. There's a prayer for his will to take shape. There's a, there's a remembrance that let his name be, be kept holy. This was everyday language for the first century. And, and to understand that a little bit, maybe it's important to understand how Jewish people and now we as followers of Jesus see history because almost every culture saw history as a circle constantly repeating. It was the Jewish culture that first said history is going somewhere. God is controlling it. He has his hand on it. It's like an arrow pointing in a direction. So this prayer at a time of national struggle, of trial, was God, step into the world. Let us partner with you. Let us be a part of that. It wasn't unusual. It was common. And then the petitions, who hasn't in history prayed for enough to live on? Who, who hasn't prayed to some God in the universe for forgiveness? Who hasn't prayed for protection from temptation to stay on the right path. These prayers, they're normal prayers. Three clauses, three petitions, one opening. Our Father. Our Father. The prayer may be normal, but everything changes on the opening. Everything changes on the opening. So those of you that know me a little bit now know that I'm slightly nerdy about multiple things. I love literature. Uh, I love the way that an author, a writer, music or books or whatever can capture you with just an opening line, whether that's Pride and Prejudice. It's a truth universally acknowledged that a young man in possession of a large fortune must be in want of a wife. You could go on and on and you could think about songs and how people like Simon and Garfunkel talked about, hello darkness, my old friend, I've come to visit you again. There's something about these lyrics that capture your imagination. You wonder, where are they going? Uh, then there's bad literature. And one of the most famous examples of bad literature is the Beulah Lighton, uh, writing like, it was a dark and stormy night. It's very cliched, very everyday. And so I'd like to update you during the course of the year on, on winners of the Beulah Lighton Award because there is so much bad literature out there and people try and write it on purpose. So here are a couple of examples from this year's winner, standing on the top of his half-finished pyramid and surveying the long rows of stone pullers and whip crackers, the pharaoh had a pang of doubt. Was he building the key to his eternal life or would it later be regarded as a mere tourist trap? It's like a whole conversation about what, what are the pyramids for? How about this one? As the dawn began to break, Debbie and Robert, their arms tightly wrapped around each other, watched in awe as the sky turned a brilliant pinkish red as the sun's rays inched their way down the slopes of the craggy peaks of the Rocky Mountains. But this was Canada, so the rays were centimetering their way down the slopes instead. It's nonsense, right? It's not good writing. It's, it's, you can have good opening lines, you can have bad opening lines. Things capture you or they don't capture you. Now, my question is this. Think about Jesus' opening line here. Our Father, is that captivating or not captivating? I would suggest to a Jewish person, this is so captivating as to almost be a distraction. 
I would wonder whether a Jewish person listening to Jesus teach this prayer heard another word that he said after he begins, our Father. Our Father? Our Father in heaven. Our Father. Now the word itself is super common. It's very everyday. In the Greek language, it's the word pater, father, dad, an everyday expression. When Jesus prays it in other places, we're told he uses this Aramaic word, Abba. And that word has this tenderness to it. It's pretty close to, to the word daddy. And those of you that are parents, you, you know just how, how incredible it is the first time that you hear mommy or daddy or a word like that, how connective it is. There's something about this language that implies trust, that implies relationship. When Jesus says, we pray our father, it really is this captivating idea of what that relationship might look like. You mean God is a father? You mean I'm allowed that kind of relationship with him? Now, Jesus' use of this language was always causing tension in his relationships with the religious authorities. This is in John's biography of Jesus' life, John chapter 5, verse 16. Now, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews began to persecute him. But Jesus answered them, to this very day, my father is at his work and I too am working. Because of this, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus, in saying God is a father, pulls himself into God's family and says, I am part of this. I have some of the authority that my father has. I have this relationship that's beyond normal. And then he goes this other step and starts to say to his earliest followers, this is going to be you too. By extension, I'm going to start to pass this relationship onto you. This prayer is in the middle of a a bigger address called the Sermon on the Mount. And four times already, Jesus has said to them, your father. And in the whole sermon, he'll do it 17 times. Your father, your father, your father in heaven. Constantly this language appears. To a Jewish person growing up, think about what that must feel like. That level of intimacy, that level of conversation. Jewish people as a, as a pattern prayer would often pray in this day and age, blessed are thou, O Lord, King of the universe. It's got the high language. It's got the majesty. It, it's got some of that peace we saw when it says, hallowed be your name. But Father, that intimate connection, to, to people listening, it, it must have had this sense of, wow, I am being invited into something beyond anything I've ever experienced. To them watching Jesus and his intimate relationship with his father, it must have felt like I'm, I'm growing into something new. This is, this is incredible. And I wonder if it came with just a shade of doubt. I wonder if it asked some questions. Can you, Jesus, really pray this way? What gives you the right to break thousands of years of Jewish culture? We've prayed in similar ways. We've kept God in reverence. It's had some distance to it. And now, now you're praying with this intimacy of language. Can you really do that? And to his followers, it might've been easy to get on board with him doing that. But then there's the next question. Can I really do that? Let's remember for a second who these guys are. They're not religious people. They're everyday, common folk. 
people that it may have been just a little bit of a stretch to believe they can have an intimate relationship with God. One of them, Peter, when he first experiences Jesus' supernatural power, his, his wonder says, go away from me. I'm a sinful man. I, I, can't, I can't track with you, Jesus. I can't live the way that you live. I can't be who you are. You're different to me. And yet in this moment, Jesus is starting to say to these followers, no, no, you can call God Father. There must have been some question of, can I really do that? And maybe that's a question you ask. Maybe you ask whether God is a Father who cares and loves you and wants a relationship with you. Maybe it's hard, as we talked about last week, to believe that God actually likes you as well as love you, that with all your idiosyncrasies, all my quirks, that God actually is interested in me. Maybe that's hard. And then maybe there's another question. Maybe your relationship with your own father teaches you something about God that is unhelpful, or maybe even gets in the way. The writer Carl Jung, over 60 years ago, said this, man's destiny, a person's destiny, is almost completely tied to their relationship with their father. Now the truth is, I would say this, God's grace, his wonder is bigger than your DNA and it's bigger than the parenting skills of the people that raised you and it's bigger than the situation that you grew up in. But still, like, look at the world and, and one, people have started to say that, that maybe we have something like a crisis of fatherlessness. There's so much struggle there that it's starting to cause fractures in society. And for so many people, you might say, there's something about my relationship with my father that, that if I think about God in the terms of my human father, I get a little bit stuck. I, I don't know if I like putting them side by side. What do you mean by father? When you hear Jesus say God is father, and Jesus is doing something very particular, he's naming God. God is not a name. God is a, a description of a being. It simply means creator. So when Jewish people used the word Elohim or God, they would say almighty God. They would say the God who creates, who is also almighty, who is above and beyond, who is all powerful. It was something very specific. The term God is very generic. It doesn't apply to anything specific. Jesus takes that idea and he says, no, when you want to name him, when you want to talk to him, what do you call him? You call him father, that is, that is what he is to you. And yet, how you hear Jesus opening, the truth is it's, it's probably influenced a bit by your own understanding of father. And for so many of us, that right can be painful, that can be triggering. I, I put some couplets on here for you. Maybe when you hear father, you think good or bad. Maybe you think absent or present. Maybe you think angry or happy. Maybe you hear discontented or content, unforgiving or forgiving, loud or quiet or unexpressive or expressive, affection, unaffectionate or affectionate. And, and I've put them down as couplets, but the truth is it's probably a spectrum. There's probably different ways that you could take your own father or experience of a father and, and place it somewhere in, in that spectrum. We each of us have some kind of experience even if it's just the experience of not having a father that teaches us something about who God is, even if we don't even realize it, even if we're unaware of it. And so to help us move the journey along a little bit and, and hopefully get to this point where some of us who have struggled with this get to embrace God as a different kind of father, 
I sketched out just from some of my own experiences and the experiences of others, some of the understandings we may have of the word Father and therefore of God because of our own relationships. Maybe the Father, maybe the Father is the one who is absent. Maybe he's the one who is absent. I journeyed as a cousin with, with my cousins at 12 and 14 when their own father passed away, my uncle passed away, and I remember him as this larger-than-life character. When he walked into a room, he just stood out. There was something about him that was significant. It wasn't that he was taller than other men. It wasn't that he was be- better-looking than other men, but there was just something about him that was captivating when he walked in the room, and I saw what it was for that absence to enter their lives. Suddenly, there was this person who was no longer there. There's the loss and death that some of us experience. For for some of us, the the sense of absence is, I never knew my father. But death also isn't the only kind of absence. There's the absence of choice. And you might say, is that better than death? I don't know that it always is because one happens without the person's choice and and the other one is, is a person's decision to leave, to go. And what does that teach us when that God is absent or when that father is absent. There's the absence of emotion. I'm just not engaged in the family. I'm just distant. I'm just separate. It's another kind of absence. The writer Frank Kafka talked about God as a landlord, but a landlord that was unseen, that was distant, that was absentee. He could always drop back into the situation, but he never really seemed to care much about what was going on. And he learned this, he said, from his own father. This was a letter he wrote to his father. I was near nothing to you. In front of you, I lost my self-confidence. In front of you, I lost my self-confidence. His father was so absent that it, it never really spoke to him of love and care and interest. I'm going to do something a little dangerous. I'm going to tell a joke and I'm going to tell it in this pointy moment and I'm going to tell a joke that I've told before, which is even worse. And, and, and I'll make a deal with you. When you all start coming every single week, I'll stop repeating jokes and then we'll, we'll all be happy. But there's this, there's this idea, there's this story about a man who runs up to the pastor at the local church he attends and says, Pastor, I need your help. There's this woman who comes to the church and, and she's been kicked out of her apartment. She's got no money and the landlord, he just doesn't care. He's merciless and we've got to help her. And the pastor says, it's okay. We've got a great food bank. We'll take care of her and we'll make sure she has enough food and we'll pay her months of her rent and we'll find her a better apartment away from this landlord and, and everything will be fine. And the man says, I'm so glad I can be part of a local church that does that kind of thing and turns to leave. And as he leaves, the pastor says to him, can you, can you just stop a second? I haven't heard about this woman. Can, can you tell me how did you hear about this story? And the man looks back and he says, oh, I'm the landlord. I'm the landlord. And it's not funny, right? But it is funny. It's, it's, it's nonsense. You're like, you, you could have done something. You could have stepped into the situation. And Kafka saw his father as that person. You could get involved, but you're not involved. You're not interested. And I feel unseen. I feel like in front of you, I lose my self-confidence. I lose my self-confidence. And how many people, because of that, Kafka and others, become to see God as that person? You, you could step in but you don't. You're not interested. What does it teach us when our father is absent? Perhaps it teaches us that God too is absent. How about this one? The one who awards grades. The one who awards grades. 
have a great relationship with my father now. I love my dad. And, and one of the things I, I picked up from him fairly early on was he was really happy when my grades were good. And, and as an adult, one, I get to do a couple of things. I get, I get to look back and say, no, I really needed someone to kick me in the pants sometimes because I was very lazy when it came to school. And, and two, I see this, he longed for me to have all of the opportunities. He didn't love his career particularly. He kept working hard at it because it provided for us. And so he constant push for me was you can achieve and you can do anything that you want to do. But psychologically, as I got to my late teens, I started to notice something about how the, that affected me. Suddenly I started to believe that, that when, when I got A's as a kid, everyone was happy. And when I got B's and C's, less so. When my performance was good, everything was great. And suddenly the connection was, when my performance was great, the connection between me and God was great. And when my performance wasn't good, the connection between me and God wasn't good. Something happened when I didn't achieve. And we've seen that right in, in life in general. Many of you will know that different careers and different achievements are often valued by parents. At least that's the perception. The comedian, um, Camille Namjani, says that, he, he and his family, a Pakistani family, he picked up very early as a stand-up comedian that his job didn't meet their standards of what was good. There was this definite pecking order. There was a doctor at the top and then there was a lawyer and, and then there was an accountant. And he said, then there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of jobs before you finally got to stand-up comedian, which really was at the bottom of the pile. We understand what it is to, to have that experience of life. Our, our parents and, and maybe us as parents to our kids give them sort of different standards of, of what is a good achievement in this world. This is a picture I took of me and Jude lying there. He's hidden behind the book and he's reading letters to a young me that was like, good for you. And there was another part that said, run away, son, as fast as you can. Is, is there any other discernible gift that you have that you could, could maybe enter into? We have these different tensions in life. And sometimes that sense that we get from our parents that achievement is important, it bleeds into our relationship with God. He becomes the one who awards grades. The philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said this, and it is perhaps the most poignant quote on prayer that I have ever heard in my life amongst all the ones that talk about the wonder of prayer and in the experience of prayer. When Soren Kierkegaard was asked to talk about how he experienced prayer, this is what he said. To pray to God is to feel guilty. To pray to God is to feel guilty. It is to say that I'm not enough. It is to, to have this constant feeling if I don't add up to your incredibly high standards. You are a God who demands A's and I'm a person that produces B's and C's and D's. You're a God that wants doctors and lawyers and accountants and I'm a stand-up comedian and I don't fit in your spectrum of, of how life should be. To pray to God is to feel guilty. When we have parents or we operate as parents that are constantly talking about achievement, constantly handing out grades, the chances are those things bleed over into a relationship with God and it all becomes about, are you performing? And yet that isn't the way that God seems to operate with us. How about this third one? What about when your father is the one who wounds? What about when your father is the one who wounds, who causes harm? 
I have a beautiful now seven-year-old. And a couple of years ago, she came to me, and I must have been in a a rather grumpy mood or something, because she came to me and said that I'm hungry, I want some food. And I remember grabbing some cereal and throwing it on the table in front of her and saying, okay, there's some cereal, you can eat that. And, And Gigi at seven is still in that place where she's very proud of being hungry all the time. She has no problem with that, and I'm sure that will change. And then there's this moment that I walked back into the room, and she looks at me, and she's like, I don't want it. It's, it's not good. And I looked at her and said, you said you were hungry. I provided you a cereal that you like. You need to eat it. And I left the room again, came back, and she said, I don't want to eat it. And I said, no, you're going to eat it. You, you asked for food. I've given you food. I've given you sustenance. You essentially, in, a, in some language, prayed, give us today our daily bread. And here, I, as your father, have provided your daily bread. Now eat your food. And I came back a third time, and, and she, with tears in her eyes, looked at me and she said, Daddy, it doesn't taste very good. And finally, I started to catch on that something was up. And so I went over and grabbed a spoonful of cereal. And needless to say, somehow, apparently, I can't tell the difference between salt and sugar in a shaker. And I had poured salt over this cereal and I was making this poor five-year-old consume every single bite. And the look of brokenness and lack of trust on her face, as she said to me, it doesn't taste very good. There was a parable from Jesus' time that said something like this, the father eats sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. It's the passing on like what the father does afflicts the children. And I changed it to the father pours salt and the children taste the results. I wounded her, right? And that's a silly humorous story. It was accidental. It was my own incompetence, maybe my own grumpiness at the time. And yet, how many times does that wounding happen intentionally and on purpose with no regard and no remorse? What happens when a father has been one that wounds and we're told that God is father? What does that mean? Throughout the Old Testament, it seems that the authors as a whole are careful about using the idea of God as father. It's rarer than you might think. There are wonderful passages like Psalm 68 that will say something like this. God is a father to the fatherless. He takes the lonely and the orphans and he puts them into families. There's great language there for us to think about how we care for those widows and orphans that are outside of family units and the joy of what it is to find a family. But as a whole, it's rarer than you'd think for the Old Testament to describe God as father. And these writers as a whole are careful to to acknowledge that there is a difference between God having male pronouns and God being a man. So this is Hosea chapter 11, verse nine. My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I turn and devastate Ephraim, another word for Israel, for I am God and not man, the Holy One among you. I will not come in wrath. Within this language in Hosea, there is some sense of, we see how men operate. I do not operate like that. We see these characteristics. That is not who I am. Now, for whatever reason in the church worldwide, we seem to have got stuck where this spectrum of like 
gender has pulled us to each end. We've got people that insist that God is a man in a particular sense, all the way through to people that insist that pronouns gender doesn't matter in terms of the Bible. And yet, of course, as almost always, the language or the correct position seems to be somewhere in the middle. The Bible is quite comfortable in its use of male pronouns so often, and yet there is this definite articulation, I am not a man. I am not like those men. I operate differently. I don't operate on those terms. In actual fact, God is even comfortable using female characteristics about himself. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. Again, the language is, I don't operate like men so often operate. I am different. I am distinct. When we think about God as father, We have to do it on the understanding that our own fathers, for all sorts of reasons, will fail and were broken. They maybe did the best with what they had, but it would never live up to this picture of what a father is, that God is not like them. He is like them in the ways they are good, and he is not like them in the ways that they are bad. And Jesus seems intent, insistent on redeeming this word. Father, right after teaching on prayer in Luke chapter 11, it says Isaiah, that's wrong, my own incompetence, it's supposed to be Luke. In Luke chapter 11, verse 11, he says, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Jesus looks at the whole sum of human history and and seems to say something like this. For the most part, your human fathers, even though they were failures in some ways because they are human, they were trying the best with what they had. But your Father in heaven is different. He is not flawed in the ways that they are flawed. Jesus begins to invite his disciples into this relationship with Father and he's constantly insisting, no, this Father is different. This Father doesn't operate on human terms. And you, you are invited into that. Whatever your understanding is of Father, however much it might be broken because of a Father who was absent, because of a Father who might have wounded, because of a Father who did all sorts of different things. The constant message of Jesus is God is Father, and he is not like that. He's not like that. He's not like that. Throughout this series, we're trying to give you words which you can take and and maybe meditate on, maybe take and use in prayer. This week, an obvious one would be this. And maybe for some of you, that works. Maybe some of you, there is a reminder of God is a father who cares, who loves you deeply, who longs for relationship with you. Maybe adding some kind of word to it will help you process it a little bit. Maybe to add good or heavenly to father gives you some different sense of of a father who isn't human. But maybe for some of you, that word just isn't going to work this week. Maybe a word you get to use is this, different. God is different. He is not like your experience. He doesn't operate that way. He's different and he's distinct. And and maybe for some of you, this word works this week. It's the word redeem. Maybe, just maybe, God can redeem that understanding of what it is to be a father. Maybe he can do that thing he articulates in Psalm 68. I am a father 
to those who are fatherless. I take the lonely and I put them into families. Maybe for you, that word redeem might have a different connotation this week. Maybe it's this way that God might pull you into relationship with him, that when you think about language like God, forgive us our sins or our debts, when you think about freedom from temptation and brokenness and all those different things, maybe you feel loose and astray and and this God seems to love to pull in those that feel that way. Maybe the word redeem for you is to, to journey into that relationship with a God who loves you who doesn't see you as broken and damaged beyond help. Maybe this week the word for you is redeem. Maybe it's the joy of standing before the God of the universe, knowing that because of Jesus, you can stand there guiltless. To pray to God is to feel guilty. That doesn't seem to be how Jesus saw it. Each one of us, because of this Jesus, gets to stand before the God of the universe as forgiven and cherished and guiltless. Let's pray. God, for each person, as we find ourselves on a journey with you, may you speak to our hearts. For those of us for whom Father is a difficult word, we maybe now have a mental picture of a father who is absent, a father who wounded us, a father who hurt us, a father who demanded too much of us. Thank you for your, through, for your words. I am God and not a man. I am not like those men. While I recognize that for some of us, this might be a long journey of conversations with people, counseling, hard work. I also believe in a God who heals. And my prayer is that God, that you would move amongst us. For those of us that need healing and comfort, that you would bring that. we would see you as a father who is good and stand before you guiltless. Amen. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks again for listening and have a great rest of your day.